G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Series 9 of This Week in Startups Australia. Throughout Series 9, we're focusing on one question. What is it that makes a startup successful? Is it a great idea? A great team? great customers, or something else altogether? This is an important question for all startups, a fundamental question. And on this series, we're looking for answers. We're talking to people who have been successful, asking them how it happened. And we're talking to people blazing new trails, asking them how they're finding the road to success. For the very first time, Twister will leave the comfort of computer tech behind to look at the emerging world of biotech. How to bioengineer your own success on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. Twista is sponsored by Odoo, a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that let you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Go to odoo.com slash Twista to check it out. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by User Testing. Experience what your customer experiences with user testing. Request your free trial at usertesting.com slash Twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed business decisions at scale. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Squarespace. From websites to online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. Go to squarespace.com slash Twista for a free trial. Twista's production partner for Series 9 is UTS Startups, where they're equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build a foundation for a successful career. To learn more about UTS Startups, go to startups.uts.edu.au. This week in Startups Australia is meant to be industry agnostic. It is not meant to be all just tech startups. But of course, it almost invariably is. And I'd have to check. But I would be surprised if we had more than two or three startups on the entire series that weren't just purely tech. Tech, tech is a broad church. And... Where it once meant just computer chips as tech, these days it could mean cells, biotech. Biotech has been with us a long time. It's been with us since the 1970s. I remember when Biogen, which was really the very first biotech company, was formed. So it's been around as long as computer tech. It gets a lot of capital because it needs a lot of capital. It doesn't really get a lot of attention or a lot of love from the broader startup community, and I'm not really sure why, though I know that I am as guilty of this as anyone. And maybe it's because I know computers so well and cells, not so much. That's gonna change. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that our future and our lives 
depend on how nimble we can be with biotech. It's biotech that brought us the new generation of mRNA vaccines that have changed the course of the pandemic and will likely soon change the course of cancer treatment. But there's a lot more to biotech, which brings us to Vow. And to explain who they are and what they do, let me introduce co-founder and CEO, George Pepew. George, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. So what do you do here at Vow? At Vow, we make cultured meat, which means we grow meat from animal cells instead of whole animals. Um, The meat we know is made up of muscle, fat, and connective tissue. All we do is we simply start with a a tiny almond-sized biopsy of an animal, and we isolate the cells that are responsible for repairing muscle, fat, and connective tissue. We can then use those to grow real meat outside of the animal. But that's, that's kind of where the idea starts. Our whole approach at Vow is to not use this to recreate the meat we eat today, but instead to create food that is different and better than the meat we can have today from animals. So we, different and better meaning? Well, nutrition, function, flavor, texture. Uh, our goal is to create foods which have a value proposition that's better on one of those axes. For instance, if you imagine a, uh, you could imagine a meat product that has a bunch of different cells with lots of L-tryptophan that can help you get to sleep, or creating a mint with a flavor profile of duck and pork fat, but with a nutritional profile of salmon. We use these cells from our library of cells as building blocks to make new types of food that are different and better than meat as a way of changing the perception and ultimately consumption habits of billions of consumers. So you're saying I'll be able to eat something that tastes evil but is actually good for me. That's exactly my goal as someone who really, really loves food. <laughs> All right. That, I, I get that this is what you're doing. It sounds very complicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so take us through, I guess, some of how do you do this? I mean, yes, okay, so you take a sample of cells from an animal, which I guess in terms of vegetarians or vegans, and I'm a vegetarian myself, that's kind mm-hmm. of good because you don't have to kill the animal. You just you just basically mm-hmm. biopsy them as if you were doing a medical test. So that's, that's fine. What happens at that point? So we bring the cells back here where we are now uh, into our space. We, we lovingly call this the Vouse. And we break down that biopsy into all of the different constituent cell types. In order for us to have cells that we can use practically to grow any kind of meat. So you're reverse engineering. Basically reverse engineering animals. I mean, if you think about animals, if you think about them in the most crude and inhumane terms as meat factories, most of the animal isn't meat. So we're we're raising these animals and slaughtering them to take a small proportion of their bodies for food. We really just want to produce that proportion of the body that we're interested in eating. So we bring those biopsies back decompose them or break them down into those relevant cell types. And then we need to create what are known as cell lines. And so cell lines have been things uh, things that have been used in uh, manufacturing and biomanufacturing for decades for pharmaceuticals, but they're cells that can grow for a really long time without changing. And from every animal that we're working on, we need to produce cell lines that are usable for our manufacturing process. And we do that by uh, using a combination of our biology and our engineering. We have a lot of in-house engineering that allows us to screen more than 10,000 cells at a time to find the fastest growing ones that are the most useful for us to be able to grow into food. And then we store those cells in fairly large vats of liquid nitrogen. And when we need them, we can draw on them. Uh, We take those into development to produce the nutritional media that those cells need, which is mostly sugar, salt, amino acids, as well as some small protein molecules that tell those cells to grow. Uh, and then we have to develop a process that allows those cells in that media to grow into enough, uh, enough cells that we can then turn those cells into food. All right, so we're going to come to some questions about the market for that food for a second. But I just want to point to everything that you talked about. How much of that 
was existing technology and existing off-the-shelf research when you started VOW versus how much have you actually just had to go and invent? There's a lot of technology that does exist, uh, but it is just not targeted at the price point that we are working at. Uh, as an example, the, the growth media that you grow cells in, it is possible and it was possible when we started to go to a company and buy animal-free growth media off the shelf. It was around $1,000 a litre and we need more than 10 and potentially tens of litres per kilo of final product. And all Making of us- the final product <laughs> very expensive. Exactly, exactly. And so, yes, the technology existed, but it's targeted towards vaccine production and monoclonal antibody drug production. And there has never been a price pressure. There's never been a need to make it cheap. And so when we go to suppliers, they say, absolutely, we have an automated microscope that'll help you screen through cells. It's $300,000 plus extras. And you're like, okay, well, we have no money. And so we've had to be really, really uh, careful and canny and luckily have an incredibly scrappy team uh, that our engineers can go and say, okay, well, we want an automated microscope. Who makes high precision moving things? Oh, there's an electromechanical company we can go and work with. Let's see if, let's see if they have a microscope or they can build us a microscope that we can use. And suddenly it's $20,000 and some engineer's time. And we have our own automated microscope with more capabilities than the $300,000 life sciences piece of equipment. So we build a lot of the tooling a lot of the software, a lot of the processes that we use to develop our food. So this is, and I guess where our listeners will be familiar with the kind of hacker ethic there, right? Oh, Which you time. don't <laughs> think about with biology. You think about biology as being big and slow and expensive <laughs> and careful. And here you are saying, well, actually, we need to do all of the stuff that you get from regular tech, which mm -hmm. is to be fast and nimble and cheap and a little out of control. Absolutely. And it's like, it, it, I think where we are with biology, and this has really only happened in maybe the last five years, is where computing was in probably the 1960s and 1970s, where up until then, it was locked away in ivory towers and universities, and you needed to be in a PhD program or a master's program to even touch the computer, and you had multiple years of training. And you get to a point where the technology just becomes accessible enough that people can take it out of academia and start to play around with it and sort of hack it together. And then you get this absolute explosion of new applications and we're just there with biology. We're just in that moment. And in the same way that computing went from very, very rare to totally ubiquitous, right. biology is just about to do the same thing. And the, the killer app in that moment was the spreadsheet, right? Because mm -hmm. the spreadsheet doesn't appear until yep. you have cheap computers everywhere. And so is the killer app now for this new level of biotech these new forms of food? I believe so. And we're really just seeing these biotech-derived foods being introduced into the food system. Companies like Impossible and Perfect Day are using recombinant protein to make very high-quality vegan-formulated foods. And that's the first time we've seen food produced through this very, very high-technology bio-based process. It's not cultured meat, but it's using a very uh, comparable technology of recombinant proteins to give us really, really high-quality foods that almost identically replicate animal products without involving animals. Right. And, and to explain a little bit for listeners with Impossible, what they replicated was something called heme. That's right. Which is the protein that makes our blood red. That's right. And adds a certain <laughs> flavor to meat mm -hmm. because meat has a lot of blood in it so that Impossible's meat, which is not meat, tastes like the real thing because exactly. of the flavor profile specifically of that protein that we find in our blood. Exactly. And that's only possible because they are building on decades and decades of biotechnology that's come out of the medical world. Our understanding of how DNA works and how to manipulate DNA made Impossible's heme something which could be widely and relatively cheaply produced in the same way that what we're working on at VOW is building on the work of pharmaceuticals and vaccine manufacturing and taking those same principles and those same technologies to a much, much lower cost use case.
Oh my, that's actually really interesting because again, when we the entire world is focused on vaccine production right now, and in fact, making that <laughs> inexpensive so that it can go to scale for the seven and a half billion people who are going to need shots every three months until further notice, right? So, so some of what you're doing could in fact be reverse, will reverse its way back up the chain mm -hmm. to help make medicines better as well as foods better. All right, let's talk about the market size here because most of these alternatives to meat are still relatively small, right? Meat is mm -hmm. a, I don't know, is it how many trillion dollars? About one and a half trillion, depending on how you measure it. All right, so it's big. That's it's big. really big. Yeah, that's really big. I mean, IT is four trillion annually, which tells you how, how big IT is. So, but just meat in terms of the food chain, one and a half trillion annually. And there's just a tiny little bit of that right now that is the, what we call the meat alternatives. That's right, is if you look at the biggest companies like Impossible and Beyond, they're valued at you know, somewhere between five and 15 billion from memory, depending on the day, and their revenue is a subset of that. So we're talking about the biggest companies combined are a tiny, tiny sliver of that total meat market today. There is such a huge opportunity. Where right is now. that going then? I mean, in mm. say 10, 15 years, because there's clearly a trend for people to be mm. eating things that are if they're not really meat mm. or less meaty or whatever. So what does that look like in 10 or 15 years? How mm. big is that market? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I may be biased here, but I think it's going to be uh, in the hundreds of billions right. in 10 or 15 years. Well, we're talking about, then, you know, we're still talking about sort of a, a fifth or a sixth of that trillion yep. dollar market, which seems quite reasonable. I, I, I believe so. And it's, I don't see that coming from uh, the very high end of that market. If you look at how meat's produced, there are very, very high quality production systems like we have in Australia. And I will say, ironically, you're the vegetarian in this interview and I'm the one that works in alternative protein. Um, so I do eat meat and we have very, very high quality and largely very sustainable meat production in Australia. But if you look at the other end of that, the intensive farming practices in other countries uh, are very, very hard to look at as something that is humane or could ever be sustainable. And it's those very intensive, low quality commodity meats that are going to be displaced by companies like Impossible Beyond and Vow. Right. Okay, so you're talking about things that are more at the mince end of scale rather yes. than at the filet mignon end of scale. I think so. I think there's still going to be a market for those premium and sustainable meat products. I don't think there's going to be much of a market for those low-end commodity factory farmed products that we have a lot of in overseas, country, or in overseas food markets. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. Twista is proudly sponsored by Odoo. One of the toughest parts of building a company is choosing which tools and service providers to use. There are so many functions in a startup, and each space has endless vendors. Sales tools, email marketing, accounting, HR and payroll, project management, customer support, point of sale, e-commerce. It goes on and on and on, and eventually you end up with a Frankenstack of tools that cost a lot and don't integrate properly. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you scale your business. For instance, their accounting products are perfect for anyone who is ready to upgrade from Excel or QuickBooks, but doesn't want to break the bank with some of the more expensive options out there. It's simple and modular, so you use what you need and all of their apps integrate perfectly with each other. Your first app is free forever. 
And right now, Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. That's not a joke. Take $1,000 off. Go to odoo.com slash twista to check it out. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twista. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. We're talking to Val, co-founder and CEO George Pepew. So, George, and I, I want to note because there's atmosphere here that we are, in fact, recording live in your offices. This is the first interview that I've been able to do face-to-face with anyone for this show in 18 months. So, all of you listening, if you hear little office sounds in the background, it's because we're in a real office. When I arrived, you showed me the laboratory that you've literally built into the office space that you have here. And I saw all this, you know, these, these bunny-suited technicians going around and doing things with test tubes and samples and all of this. And you pointing to all the lovely equipment. And I'm thinking, wow, this looks like it costs a lot of money. So in terms of the capitalization requirements for a startup, I'm used to sort of a software startup, even a hardware startup, sort of being in tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to really get things off the ground in terms of not salaries, but in terms of plant. Uh, biotech must be a very different proposition. It, uh, we, didn't, we didn't approach it the way biotech's normally approached. So when Tim and I founded the company back in April 2019, we did so by each putting $25,000 of our own money in with the goal of getting to the point where we had eaten some cultured meat before we went to market to raise capital. And if you ask pretty much anyone in biotech and say, can these guys set up a cell culture lab and culture a bunch of cells and eat them for $50,000, the answer would be... And and live. And (laughs) and live, live, and live. That would be an emphatic no. Uh, We took over a shoe cupboard at my old workplace, uh, a lab which we probably shouldn't have been in. We bought some very cheap equipment that was uh, second or third or fourth hand or fell off a truck. We put it all in a lab. We were lucky enough to have some wonderful scientists willing to volunteer their time in the evening. Um, Beck, who was our very first hire, was one of those. Um, and we got to work and we did it in our evenings and our weekends we didn't uh, we didn't pay ourselves we had to deal with setting up accounts with life science companies but for fifty thousand dollars we were able to get to the point where we had our first functioning actually two functioning labs Uh, we set up our second lab at the same time Uh, we had isolated cells we had cultured them grown enough of them to eat and consume Uh, and at that point we felt like we had enough to contribute to this industry we had the ability to do things faster and cheaper than others. And we were in a position where raising a relatively small amount of money for biotech could get us to some really major milestones. You were able to go faster and cheaper because that was always the only way you were able to move forward, right? So it was really necessity being the mother of invention in a very literal (laughs) sense here. And I think a big part of it as well is neither Tim or I came from uh, really science background. I did do a science degree in my undergrad, but I'm definitely not a scientist. And so a lot of the ways things were done, we just looked at it and said, there has to be a better way. We, we can't do it like this. We can't, we can't manually file images of cells in a folder on a computer. Obviously, that doesn't make sense. We need a more automated and more systematic approach here. And it was that frustration that gave us probably the biggest edge that we had in the early days of Val. I mean, 
sorry, I'm just getting lost for a second. I love it when a guest actually just makes my brain explode like this a little bit because what you describe here is literally what Thomas Kuhn talked about in the structure of scientific revolutions when an outsider enters a new field and simply sees it completely differently and changes the way that they operate because he's got that outsider attitude. He's not inculcated in a common methodology of how things should work. Does that then mean that as Val grows, that it takes that idea forward and basically scales based on those new cost structures and those new methodologies? That's exactly what we're trying to do. And we're, we're working really, really hard to build this very, very intentionally multidisciplinary team. So really any project that any team is working on should not just be pure science or engineering or manufacturing or product. It needs a combination of those things. So any problem that we're facing, we're looking at from multiple perspectives and being really intentional about the most effective way to solve it. And what Tim and I are trying really, really hard to do as the company grows and scales, we're now 28 people. And so our actions and our intentions no longer have the biggest impact, but it's our culture is trying to instill that scrappiness and that first principles problem solving into everything that we do so that that can be our DNA as we scale so that we don't get to a point where we have so much money that we're no longer cost sensitive. We're no longer pushing for faster, better, cheaper ways to do things. We just sort of accept the status quo. Uh, and that's going to be, I don't think that's going to be an easy transition, uh, but it's something I feel incredibly strongly about being absolutely at Val's core. All right. So 20, 28 people, so that's a lot of salary right there. You do have fancy equipment down there, even if you built it or got it cheap. You, you, this is not, this is not a sort of an office with a bunch of computers and everyone running everything on Google Cloud. So how do you capitalize a biotech startup? What have you learned about how you capitalize a biotech startup? Wow, uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that one. There's a lot that I can say here. In, in general... I think the capital markets in Australia are certainly learning a lot more about how biotech and deep tech works. We've been incredibly lucky. Our, first, our pre-seed round was led by Blackbird and our seed round was led by SquarePeg with participation by Grok Ventures uh, in both rounds and Tenacious Ventures in our seed round. So we've been incredibly lucky to have venture support. And uh, smart VCs, because there's smart VCs at both Absolutely. of those funds. Oh, they're, they're incredible, incredible investors, yeah. humans, and just incredibly supportive and passionate uh, people just across the board. They are going through the same learning journey about how do biotech and deep tech startups work um, and understand that there's a very different set of milestones is with a SaaS business or even with hardware businesses, you can get to early revenue and start to de-risk the market so much earlier. But with a deep tech company, really the milestones that you're looking to hit are technology ones. You're trying to de-risk the technology as a way of coming to market in the fastest and most efficient and safe way so that you can de-risk that market. And there's just many, many, many more steps you need to do to get that. But venture capitalists are historically risk adverse to quote unquote research projects, right? And I mean, I look at that beautiful lab down there and I'm like, oh my God, that's a beautiful research project because you're learning so much through yep. this, right? So how do you get them to be comfortable if they're going to come along and invest? How do you get them to be comfortable with that aspect of it? I think with a company like Vow especially is we're such a binary outcome. We are we are either a successful mission-driven company feeding billions of people and with a valuation to match that, or we go to zero. So we really fit the mandate of venture capital. Mm. And especially as software becomes cheaper to start, software companies are becoming cheaper and cheaper to start. You can get so much further without capital and there are so many more sources of capital for those founders 
venture capital as their funds get bigger are looking for these other opportunities where there is that venture backable and that venture return outcome that they can get out of it. So what you're saying is, in fact, something that looks like you is the ideal venture capital candidate in a few years' time. Absolutely. And there's, there's a heap of dict- uh, deep tech companies that have come out that have been venture-backed that have been hugely successful. If you look at SpaceX yeah. as a venture-backable company 10 years ago, you would, you would say, absolutely no, rockets are not venture-backable. How on earth are you going to raise enough capital to do that? And obviously, they're landing rockets routinely now. There are uh, the companies like Ginkgo Bioworks just exited today, actually. They announced they are uh, merging with a SPAC for $17 billion, uh, a biomanufacturing company. Zymogen IPO'd a couple of weeks ago. All of a sudden, these deep tech and biotech companies, uh, these sort of first generation are maturing. And understandably, venture capitalists are looking at that and saying, oh, this is a really big opportunity. <laughs> I got to get me some of that. Exactly, exactly. And the risk is high. The capital requirements are high. Because of that, the moat is much deeper. Now, where are you in funding? You've had a seed round, and right. have you had a ser- anything like a Series A? No, so we've raised a pre-seed and a seed. We've raised in total around 10 million Australian dollars. Okay, for Australia, keep in mind, that is an enormous seed round. So we're talking about resetting the scale a bit around what we would call this because it is more expensive. Absolutely. All right, because seriously... 10 million would be a reasonable Series A for most Australian startups. But again, you're talking software and maybe hardware. So something that's just cheaper. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. And then, so what is your next big technology goal? What are you looking to do? What's the next thing on the way there? So everything we're working on at the moment is preparing our technology for uh, manufacture. Mm -hmm and regulatory approval so that we can be selling our first product to customers as soon as the end of next year. And is this, do you have to go to the TGA or do you have to go to Food Safety Australia? So Food Standards ANZ is the Australian regulator, but we are not going to be selling our first product in Australia. We're almost certainly going to be selling it in a market like Singapore or one of those markets which has much more advanced regulation Mm -hmm. and has a regulator that's much more open to collaboration and shortening those timelines. We can get on the phone with the regulator in Singapore and other countries and just ask them questions. We're thinking about doing this, what do you think? And they can very quickly give us feedback on that. And Singapore actually had the first bioengineered meat product That's on right. the market, I think, what, about six, seven months ago? At, at beginning of December, I believe it launched. Yeah. So just chicken, uh, chicken nuggets have been on the market in Singapore for nearly six months now. And as far as I can tell, going very well. All right. The big theme of Series 9, George, is success. What have you learned in your own journey as an entrepreneur to get Vow to this point about success? What can you share with people about what you've learned about success? Uh, I think there's probably two... I definitely don't feel like I'm successful yet. We're hopefully on the pathway to be there, so I feel a bit strange giving my opinion on this. From a company perspective, the two things, the two biggest learnings for me... One is just optimize for the people in the team, optimize to get the best people in the door, keep them happy, create an environment where people want to come and learn and grow. Uh, and the other one is just the incredible power of storytelling is we, we, Tim and I basically story told our way to a company. We had no scientific credibility, no technology, literally didn't know which end of a pipette was which when we started, but we could tell a good story. Uh, and that was so incredibly impactful and continues to be incredibly impactful as we try to bring this increasingly large team and getting them moving in the same direction around such an important mission. George, thank you very much for sharing that story with This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you so much for having me.
Twista is proudly sponsored by user testing. Are you launching a new product, developing a new prototype, rolling out a new campaign? User testing lets you see, hear, and talk to your customers to understand how they experience your brand, your product, and your services. Chubby's, a men's casual apparel brand, gained valuable insights by asking some of their customers to explain why they love their Chubby's shorts, when they wore them last, even asking for new product suggestions to guide their product roadmap. So put yourself in your customer's shoes with user testing. Request your free trial at usertesting.com twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed business decisions at scale. In my interview with George Pepew at Vow, you can hear the moment when my brain starts to explode with ideas. As George is really trying to do his best to chart the shape of a shift that he is seeing because he's very much in the middle of it. A shift from an older style of what we think of as startups and venture capital and growth to a newer style. So that old style is something that we have covered extensively in the nine series of This Week in Startups Australia, right? You have a small startup, you have a software company, it gets a little bit of funding, it gets a product, it finds product product market fit, and then it feeds that engine with capital in order to produce more and more and more sales. Eventually, it gets acquired, it goes public, whatever it is. And we know because we've talked to venture capitalists and we've talked to startup founders all over that journey, roughly how that journey looks. And it's not exactly the same for a hardware company because hardware costs are somewhere higher, but it's broadly the same. So if you're talking about computer tech, whether that's SaaS or even just individually wrapped software or hardware, you have a basic idea of how that world works. George is talking about what the worlds of biotech and deep tech is actually quite different, where you're effectively starting off with a theory about an amazing product if you can get there. And then you spend years and a lot of money doing all of the research to solve all of the problems to get you there. And there is no guarantee that at some point during that process, you won't hit a wall that effectively stops the entire project, where the experiment just basically fails. And all of the capital is gone. All of that time is gone. Yes, you will have learned a lot, but you will not be on the path to a market. And that's a real sort of zero or one. You're going to get a very binary result there. There's no lifestyle business in this. There's either a big company or there's no company at all. And the amount of time and capital that it takes to make that happen is dramatically different from what we've seen with software, SaaS, hardware companies. All of the time I've been doing the show and for some time before that, the costs of doing software startups has been dropping, dropping, dropping every single year. You now have Amazon Web Services and all the other cloud services and all of the distribution channels that simply didn't exist even a decade ago to make it really easy to go to market with the software product. So all of those costs have gotten to the point now where a software company doesn't even necessarily have to access venture capital in the way we've understood it or investment in the way that we've always understood it. We had Matt Allen on from Tractor Ventures just in the last episode talking about the new models where you can actually just basically use loans to fund your business into viability. 
That is not something that you can do with biotech. That is not something that you can do with deep tech because it is expensive and it takes a long time. And so what George actually sees and what I can now see with him is this enormous pivot that's going on in the entire idea of startups and the investment community that surrounds them away from this very cheap, easy, safe software model, which is not to say that it is in any way safe. It's just safer compared to the new model, which is expensive and slow and not at all guaranteed, but can yield huge results if there is a win. And this to me looks like that's going to be the model going forward for venture capital. The venture capital is not getting the kinds of returns it needs off these small businesses, or there's just so much competition down there that there are other firms like Tractor Ventures that can satisfy that need for capital. Whereas where the need for capital is going is to these very big, not quite moonshot, but definitely deep tech biotech projects that will require investment and years of work to yield results. And so I think what we'll see is by the time we get to series 14 or 15 on this show, we will be talking more in those terms. Where are you on your multi-year journey between a great idea and a huge new market? So this is what George has basically learned for himself because he has been on that journey. And it's going to be our pleasure to be on that journey as well over the next few years to take a look and to see if this pivot from software into deep tech is really something that's encompassing all of the startup space. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia, and we will be right back. Twista is proudly sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. With Squarespace, you can blog, publish content, promote your business, announce upcoming events and special projects, sell products and services of all kinds, and much more. No matter what you need to do online, Squarespace has the answer. Don't take their word for it. Here's what the folks at Remote Demo Day have to say. Now, back in 2020, they decided to create Remote Demo Day for founders to pitch to thousands of angel investors live. They purchased the domain RemoteDemoDay.com and had the site up and running in minutes because Squarespace is so easy to use. Remote Demo Day has been a success so far, and Squarespace has played a huge part in that. From websites to online stores, from marketing tools to analytics, Squarespace has what you need to succeed online. Go to squarespace.com slash Twista for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the code Twista to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash Twista. George Pepew's initial comments about success were fairly straightforward. Find great people, hire them, and treat them really well. Now, that is just good advice. No matter what business you're in, of course, very much if you're in a startup and very much if you're in a deep tech startup because the kind of people that you're looking for are rare and talented. 
So that's the first step. But the other thing that he talked about was really bringing them into the story. This is something we've also heard from other folks on this show, that in fact there is a narrative here. There is a reason why this startup is doing what it's doing. And really what George and co-founder Tim did was they spun a story that built this startup, that made the idea behind the startup sound so alluring that of course people would want to join. Of course People would want to make this story their story and then make that story their success. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Odoo, User Testing, and Squarespace. Thanks to our production partners at UTS Startups for their assistance. Thanks to George Pepew of Vow for making some time to come onto our show. Come visit our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows. All the interviews, all the photos, and all the links to all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week with our second news special for Series 9. And we'll take a look at what this year's federal budget might mean for the startup sector. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>